Chapter 104 of Consuelo. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Consuelo by George Sand. Chapter 104. The cold was intense when Porpora and Consuelo arrived at Prague, as night was closing in. A brilliant moon illumined the ancient city, which preserved in its aspect the religious and warlike character of its history. Our travelers entered it by the gate called Rosethor, and passing through that portion of it which was on the right bank of the Moldai, they reached the middle of the bridge without accident. But there the carriage received a heavy shock and stopped suddenly. Holy Virgin, cried the postillion, my horse has fallen before the statue. It is a bad omen. May St. John Nepomuk help us. Consuelo, seeing that the shaft horse was entangled in the traces and that the postillion would require some time to raise him and readjust the harness, of which several buckles had been broken by the fall, proposed to her master to alight in order to warm themselves by a little exercise. The maestro having consented, Consuelo approached the parapet in order to examine the localities around. From the spot on which he stood, the two distinct cities of which Prague is composed, one called the New, which was built by the Emperor Charles IV in 1348, and the other, which ascends to the remotest antiquity, both constructed in the form of amphitheaters, look like two black mountains of buildings from which ascended here and there the lofty spires of the antique churches and the somber battlements of the fortifications. The Moldau flowed dark and rapid beneath the bridge, which was of the simplest construction, and which had been the theater of so many tragical events in the history of Bohemia. And the rays of the moon, which silvered the projecting battlements, streamed full on the head of the revered statue. Consuelo examined long the features of the holy doctor, who seemed to fix a melancholy gaze on the dark and flowing waters. The legend of St. Nepomuk is a holy and touching story, and his name is venerated by everyone who esteems independence and loyalty. Confessor to the Empress Jane, he refused to betray the secrets of her confession, and the drunken Wenceslas, eager to discover his wife's secret thoughts, but unable to draw anything from the illustrious doctor, had him drowned under the bridge of Prague. The tradition relates that at the moment when he disappeared beneath the waves, five brilliant stars glittered upon the scarcely closed gulf, as if the martyr had allowed his crown to float for an instant upon the waters. In record of this miracle, five stars of metal have been inlaid in the stone of the balustrade, at the very spot from which Nepomuk was hurled. Rosmunda, who was very devout, had preserved a tender recollection of the legend of John Nepomuk, and in the enumeration of the saints, whom every evening she taught her child to call upon with lisping accents, she had never forgotten that one the special patron of travelers and of people in danger, and above all, the guardian of a good reputation. 
Consuelo therefore recalled at this instant the prayer which he formerly addressed to the apostle of purity, and struck by the sight of the place which had witnessed his tragical end. She knelt instinctively among the devotees, who at that epoch still paid, each hour of the day and night, an assiduous court to the image of the saint. They were composed principally of poor women, pilgrims and aged beggars, with perhaps a few Zingari, children of the mandolin and proprietors of the highway. Their piety did not absorb them so much as to make them forget to hold out their hands as she passed. She gave them liberal alms, happy to recall the time when she was neither better clad nor prouder than they. Her generosity affected them so much that they consulted together in a low voice, and then charged one of their number to tell her that they were going to sing one of the ancient hymns in honor of the blessed Nepomuk, that the saint might avert the bad omen which had stopped their progress. According to them, the music and the words dated so far back as the time of Wenceslas the drunkard. Suspici cas dedimus, Johannes Pieti, Tibi presse supplices, Noster avocate, Fieri dom vivimus, Nisenus infamus, Et nostris post obitum, Silas infirmanus. Porpora, who took pleasure in listening to them, was of opinion that the hymn could not be more than a century old, but a second which he heard seemed a malediction addressed to Wenceslas by his contemporaries, and commenced thus, Sivis piger imperator, malorum claris petrater, etc. Although the crimes of Wenceslas were of no great importance, the poor Bohemian seemed to take a pleasure in eternally cursing in the person of this tyrant the abhorred title of Imperator, which had become synonymous in their eyes with that of foreigner. An Austrian sentinel guarded each of the gates placed at the entrances of the bridge. It was their duty to march unceasingly from either end and meet before the statue when they turned their backs and resumed their monotonous walk. They heard the Canticles, but as they were not as well-versed in church Latin as the devout inhabitants of Prague, they doubtless fancied they were listening to a hymn in praise of Francis of Lorraine, the husband of Maria Theresa. Listening to these delightful airs by the light of the moon in one of the most romantic situations in the world, Consuela felt herself overwhelmed with melancholy. Her journey so far had been gay and happy, and by a natural reaction, she fell all at once into the opposite extreme. The postilion, who set about repairing his harness with true German phlegm, kept on repeating so constantly, Ha! This is bad business! that poor Consuelo at last became affected by his evil presages. Every painful emotion, every prolonged reverie, recalled Albert's image. At that moment she recollected that Albert, hearing the canonist one evening, invoked St. Nepomuk, the guardian of good reputation, aloud in her prayer, had said to her, That is all very well in you, aunt, who have taken the precaution to ensure yours by an exemplary life. But I have often seen souls stained by vice, 
called to their aid the miracles of this saint in order the better to conceal from men their secret iniquities. Thus it is that devout practices serve quite as often to cloak the grossest hypocrisy as to sustain and fortify innocence. At that instant, as Consuela thought she heard Albert's voice sounding at her ear in the evening breeze and in the dusk of the Maldau's gloomy waves. She asked herself what he would think of her, he who perhaps believed her already perverted, if he could see her prostrate before that image. And, almost terrified, she was rising to retire when Porphyrus said to her, Come, let us get into the carriage again. Everything is repaired. She followed him and was just entering the carriage when a cavalier, heavily mounted on a horse still heavier than his rider, stopped abruptly, alighted, and approaching gazed at her with a tranquil curiosity, which appeared to her excessively impertinent. "'What are you doing there, sir?' said Porpora, pushing him back. "'Ladies are not to be stared at so closely. "'It may be the custom in Prague, but I warn you, I am not inclined to submit to it.' The stout man drew his chin out of the furs which enveloped it, and still holding his horse by the bridle, replied to Porpora in Bohemian, without perceiving that the latter did not understand a word of what he said. But Consuelo, struck by his voice, and leaning forward to look at his features by the moonlight, cried, interposing between him and Porpora, Do I indeed see the Baron of Rudolstadt? Yes, it is I, Signora, replied Baron Frederick. It is I, the brother of Christian, the uncle of Albert. Oh, it is indeed I. And it is in truth you also, added he, uttering a deep sigh. Consuelo was struck by his dejected air and his cold greeting. He, who had always been the mirror of chivalry, did not so much as kiss her hand or touch his furred cap, but contented himself with repeating with a half-stupid, half-terrified air, Yes, it is even so. It is indeed you. What news from Riesenberg, said Consuelo with emotion. Yes, Signora, I long to tell it to you. Well then, Baron, speak. Tell me about Count Christian, about the canoness, and... Yes, I shall tell you all, replied the Baron, more and more dejected. And Count Albert, resumed Consuelo, terrified at the expression of his countenance. Yes, oh, yes, Albert, yes, I would speak of him. But he said not a word, and to all the questions of Consuelo, he remained as dumb and motionless as the statue of St. Nepomuk. Porpora began to grow impatient. He was cold and longed to reach some shelter. Moreover, this meeting, which was so well calculated to make a deep impression on Consuelo, annoyed him hugely. My Lord Baron, said he, we shall have the honor of paying our respects to you tomorrow, but permit us at present to sup and warm ourselves. That is more important than compliments, he added, pressing into the carriage and pushing Consuelo unwillingly in before him. But my dear friend, she exclaimed anxiously, let me ask. Let me alone, he bluntly added. This man is mad or dead drunk and we may spend the entire night upon the bridge without getting a word of sense from him. 
Prince Will was a prey to the deepest anxiety. You are pitiless, said she, as the carriage passed the bridge and entered the ancient city. Another moment and I should have learned what I am more interested in than anything else in the world. Aho, are we there still, said the maestro angrily. Is this Albert always running through your head? A precious family, forsooth, to judge by this old booby with his cap apparently glued to his head, for he had not even the civility to raise it when he saw you. It is a family for which, until lately, you express the highest esteem, so much so that you consigned me to its care as to a haven of safety, and enjoined on me the deepest respect, love, and affection for all the members of it. The last injunction you have obeyed to the letter, I see. Consuela was about to reply, but remained silent when she saw the baron mount his horse with the intention, apparently, of following the carriage. When she alighted, she found the old noble at the entrance, holding out his hand to assist her in doing the honors of his house. For it was there, and not at the inn, that he had directed the postillion to stop. Pauper in vain refused his hospitality. He was not to be put off, and Consuelo, who burned to clear up her melancholy presentiment, hastened to accept his attentions, and proceeded with him into the saloon, where a huge fire and an excellent supper awaited them. "'You perceive, Signora," said the Baron, "'that I calculated on your arrival.' "'That greatly surprises me,' replied Consuelo, "'for we mentioned it to no one, "'and we did not even expect to get here before tomorrow.' You are not more astonished than I am, said the baron, with a disconsolate air. But the baroness Amelia, asked Consuelo, ashamed of having so long neglected to inquire for her old friend. A cloud lowered on the baron's brow, and his ruddy hue, chilled by the cold, became so livid that Consuelo was terrified. But he replied with a sort of forced tranquility, my daughter is in Saxony with one of her relations. She will be sorry at not having seen you. And the other members of your family, my lord, resumed Consuelo. Can you inform me? Yes, you shall know everything, replied the baron. Eat, Signora. You will require it. I cannot eat if you do not relieve my disquietude. In the name of heaven, sir, is there anyone dead? No person is dead, replied the baron, in a tone as melancholy as if he were announcing the extinction of his whole race. And he began to carve the meats with the same slow and solemn precision that he was in the habit of observing at Riesenberg. Consuelo had not the courage to question him further. The supper appeared to her dreadfully tedious. Porpora, who was less anxious than hungry, endeavored to converse with his host. The latter attempted on his side to reply politely and even to put some questions to the maestro respecting his affairs and projects. But this mental effort was evidently beyond his strength. He never replied coherently, or else he repeated his questions, though he had just received a reply. He carved huge portions of the meat, and filled his plate and glass most copiously. But it was merely the effect of habit. He neither ate nor drank. 
and letting his fork fall, he fixed his eyes on the table and gave way to the deepest dejection. Consuelo looked steadily at him and saw plainly that he was not intoxicated. She asked herself if this sudden sinking of the system was the result of misfortune, of disease, or of old age. At last, after torturing them in this manner for two hours, the repast being ended, the baron signed to his domestics to retire, and after a long search pulled an open letter out of his pocket and presented it to Consuelo. It was from the canoness and was as follows. We are lost, my dearest brother. There is no hope. Dr. Supperville has at last arrived here from Bereath, and after putting us off for some days, he informed me that it would be necessary to arrange the affairs of the family. Since in eight days, perhaps Albert would be no more. Christian, to whom I dare not make this disclosure, still entertains some hope, but he is dreadfully downcast, and I do not know whether my nephew's loss be the only stroke which threatens me. Frederick, we are lost. Shall we ever survive such misfortunes? I cannot tell. The will of God be done. That is all I can utter, but I do not think I shall have force to bear up against this heavy trial. Come to us, my brother, and endeavor to sustain our courage, if you have sufficient strength remaining after your own heavy misfortune, that crowning blow to the misery of a family which may well be called accursed. What crimes have we committed to deserve such inflictions? May our heavenly parent enable me to regard his dealings toward us with humble faith and submission, and yet at times I feel as if this were more than I could accomplish. Come to us, dear brother. We wait anxiously for you, and we require your counsel and assistance. Nevertheless, do not quit Prague before the 11th. I have a singular commission to give you. I am mad, I think, to lend myself to it, but I am completely bewildered and can only conform blindly to Albert's will. On the 11th, then, at seven o'clock in the evening, be on the bridge of Prague at the foot of the statue. The first carriage that passes you will stop. The first person you see in it, you will conduct to your house. And if she can leave for Riesenberg that very evening, Albert will perhaps be saved. At least, he says it will give him a hold on eternal life. What he means by that, I do not know. However, the revelations he has made during the past week of events the most unforeseen by us, have been realized in so extraordinary a manner that it is no longer permitted me to doubt. He has the gift of prophecy and the perception of hidden things. He called me to his bedside this evening, and in that faint and inaudible voice, which is all that is now left him, and which must be guessed rather than heard, told me to transmit to you the words which I have now faithfully reported. At seven o'clock, then, on the eleventh, be at the foot of the statue, and whoever may be the occupant of the carriage, bring her hither with all speed. Consuelo had hardly finished this letter, ere she grew as pale as the baron, rose suddenly, then fell back in her seat, where she remained motionless, with rigid arms and clenched teeth. But immediately rallying, she rose a second time and said to the baron, 
who had relapsed into a stupor. Well then, sir, is the carriage ready? If so, I am ready also, and we can set out instantly. The baron rose mechanically and left the room. Everything had been prepared beforehand. Carriage and horses were already in the courtyard, but, like an automaton moved by springs, without Consuelo, the baron would have thought no more of their departure. Hardly had he left the saloon when Porphyrus seized the letter and hastily glanced over its contents. He, too, turned pale in his turn, could not utter a word, and paced up and down before the stove greatly agitated. The maestro justly reproached himself for what had happened. He had not foreseen it, it is true, but he now thought that he ought to have foreseen it, and seized with terror and remorse, and bewildered, moreover, at the invalid's strange prediction respecting Consuelo. He almost believed himself a prey to some horrible dream. Nevertheless, as he was both calculating and tenacious of purpose to the highest degree, he reflected on the possible consequences of Consuelo's sudden resolution. He moved nervously through the room, struck his forehead, stamped, made various other manifestations of uneasiness, and at last arming himself with courage and braving the explosion which he feared, he said to Consuelo, shaking her as he spoke to rouse her from her reverie, "'You wish to go with the baron, then? I consent.' but at the same time I shall follow you. You wish to see Albert, and perhaps deal a death blow to his enfeebled constitution. But as we cannot now turn back, let us set out at once. We have still two days at our disposal. True, we were to spend them at Dresden, but we shall not now pause there. If we are not in Prussia by the 18th, we fail in our engagement. The theater opens on the 25th, and if you are not ready to appear, I shall be subject to a heavy fine. I have not half the sum at my disposal, and in Prussia, he who does not pay goes to prison. Once there, you are forgotten. It may be for ten or perhaps twenty years, and you may die of hunger or old age, whichever you prefer. This is the fate which awaits me if you forget to leave Riesenberg on the fourteenth by daybreak. Do not be uneasy, my dear master, replied Consuelo firmly. I have already thought of all that. Do not make me suffer at Riesenberg. That is all I ask of you. We shall set out on the 14th by daybreak. You must swear it. I swear it, she replied, with a gesture of impatience. When your life and liberty are at stake, no oath, I should think, is needed from me. At this moment, the baron returned, followed by a faithful and intelligent servant, who, wrapping Consuelo up in a fur pelisse, as he would have done an infant, bore her off to the carriage. They were soon at Barome, and arrived at Pilsen by daybreak. End of chapter 104